please turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12 this morning. When my son was a toddler, I climbed onto his bed to tell him a story and he said, Daddy, you broke my rules. I don't know if he didn't want me to climb on then or if it was the manner in which I climbed onto his bed or if that was just his domain and I shouldn't be on there at all. But he said, Daddy, you broke my rules. Because he wanted to be in control of his world and the bed was part of his world and I had broken his control. And he he got frustrated with that and then he got really frustrated with the fact that I didn't get off. Right? That he all of a sudden had to acknowledge the limitations to his toddler authority, his toddler will. Right? Uh, I experience that sometimes myself. I prefer to be in control. And it's frustrating when I experience circumstances that demonstrate I'm not in control. And even more frustrating when I see circumstances arising that seem to indicate that God's not in control either. When bad people seem to be succeeding and doing well and good people are suffering, or when bad people seem to be causing that suffering for the good people, and God's people have often struggled with this throughout the ages, Wondering, God, what's happening here? Why are the righteous suffering and the unrighteous prospering? As the psalmist said, Psalm chapter 73, Behold, these are the wicked and they are always at ease. They have increased in wealth, or so it seems. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. God, it doesn't seem like you are in control because if you were, circumstances would look differently than they now do. It's always been a struggle for the church. It seems to be the circumstances that are faced by the church actually in Acts chapter 12. As we begin that chapter, the church has been generally prospering. There's been persecution, but mostly progress, right? Day of Pentecost, 3,000 people. A few days later, there are 2,000 people more. There's 5,000 people that have joined this, this new movement of God and his spirit on earth. And then there is uh, an Ethiopian eunuch who trusts Christ and some Samaritans and a Roman centurion. And then this outbreak of revival among Gentiles in Antioch. Things to be, seem to be progressing. But as you begin Acts chapter 12, this evil king enters into the story who doesn't acknowledge God. And he threatens literally to destroy the church by going after the leadership of the church. By trying to take out, physically remove the leadership of the church. How will the church respond as it is undergoing suffering? What you see in chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14 is that the church presses on. In spite of all the trials and the tribulation and the suffering, the church learns to trust God in all circumstances. So I want you to read with me beginning in Acts chapter 12 and verse 1. Now about that time, Herod, the king, laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people to execute him. Now a little background is helpful. We are introduced to Herod here. Uh, This is not Herod the Great. This is Herod Agrippa I. He is a grandson of Herod the Great, the king who was the Herod who was king at the time of the birth of Jesus. That's Herod the Great. We're talking about the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, you recall, was uh, a leader who actually ruled over all of Israel 
He's a very powerful man, but he's also a man who became very paranoid in his life. He had 10 wives, uh, some of whom he put to death, uh, among other family members that he killed. In fact, when Herod was about to die, he knew that he was about to die. He ordered that his commanding officers uh, commit this massacre at the moment of his death so that the people wouldn't rejoice that he had died. Instead, they would mourn the people who had been killed. Right? He died, and they realized, hey, he's no threat to us any longer, so they didn't carry out the execution. But Herod, was a, he was a, Herod the Great was a vicious man. In fact, Agrippa's own father was executed by Herod the Great. I mean, it was not the only son that Herod the Great executed. Herod Agrippa's mother was a Jew, and she sent him upon the death of his father to Rome to be educated, partly to separate him from his crazy grandfather. So he went to Rome, he was educated in the royal courts, he actually became friends with two future emperors, very close friends, Caligula and Claudius. So much so that when uh, Caligula became emperor, he gave Herod Agrippa the Decapolis, and then when when Claudius became emperor, he added to that Judea and Samaria, so that Herod Agrippa I actually reigned over an empire that was equivalent to what his grandfather Herod the Great had reigned over. By way of contrast, though, The Jews hated Herod the Great, who was an Idumean or an Edomite, but they actually thought pretty fondly of Agrippa, partially because he had a Jewish mother, but also he gave away a lot of stuff to the Jewish leaders, and he curried favor with the Jewish leaders. Jewish leaders liked Agrippa, not just because he had a Jewish mother, but also they liked this sense of having some level of sovereignty, right? They had a king. They were a kingdom. It wasn't a Davidic king, but they did have a king. They also liked the fact that they had some leverage or some control over the decisions that Agrippa made. Because Agrippa wanted to appease them. You recall that uh, Israel was actually a very difficult place to govern. Of all of the areas under Roman rule, there were probably more revolts that started in Israel than in any other territory. So Agrippa needed to keep the peace and he needed the Jewish leadership to help him keep the peace. Because they could either incite revolt against Herod in Rome or they could calm things down. So when Herod saw that the Jews were turning against this sect called Christians, he joined with them. And he had one of their leaders taken in and beheaded. When he saw that that pleased them, that James, not the brother of Jesus, but James, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, when he was put to death, one of the three key leaders in the church, he said, let me go, get, go and get another leader of the church. And he brought Peter into prison with the intention of executing him. And he stationed 16 guards around him. He was chained to two. Two stood at the doorway. And groups of four would rotate every three hours. It was an exceptionally tight level of security for a Galilean fisherman. Why did he do that? Well, because last time Peter had been in prison, he had escaped. And Herod said to himself, that is not going to happen again. And so his intention was to destroy the young church. Now, how would the church respond in the midst of this suffering? Well, I'm going to argue that there are three lessons that we learn from the church in the midst of suffering in Acts chapter 12. The first is this. Under suffering, the church learns to trust. Even when under great tribulation. Now, church, I would argue that we need to have a ready answer for suffering. And one of the things I've seen in the church over the last couple of decades is the theology of the church has grown weak in the area of suffering. 
We don't have a good understanding of, of why God allows suffering in the world and that God allows suffering in the world and that sometimes it is in the course of God's will for us to suffer. In fact, Peter will later write in his first letter, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. In fact, Peter's going to argue the normal Christian life in this day and age includes suffering. It includes trial. It includes tribulation. Paul and Barnabas would plant churches in chapters 13 and 14. We see the first missionary journey. Then they would trace their route back and they would visit each church. In Acts chapter 14, Luke records that they were strengthening the souls of the disciples in these churches they had just planted, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In other words, this this young church, this baby church, had already seen suffering. They had seen tribulation. They had seen Paul who came in and planted the church, stoned and left for dead. And Paul and Barnabas realized we need to go back through the church and remind them this is natural, this is normal, this is part of the, the, the experience of the church. And it should be expected and we need to understand what God is doing through this process. As Jesus said to his disciples, in the world you have tribulation. The word for tribulation is really a very colorful world. word. It means uh, to be in a narrow space or to experience pressure. It's a word for pressure. It's tight, it's confined, it's narrow. Suffering. Why does God allow his church to suffer? Why is this the normal experience for the church? Paul would later write that uh, Satan, he would describe him as the, the prince of the power of the air. That's an interesting description, isn't it? The prince of the power of the air. In other words, uh, there's something in the air that you breathe that hates God. Okay? <laughs> There's something all around you. It's, it's a world order. John calls it the cosmos. It is a world order that is set against God, that hates God, that doesn't want God to be in charge, but wants to be in charge itself. And that is the world order in which we live. The, the family of Herod is a great illustration of this. Remember, Herod the Great heard that a child was born who would eventually be king over Israel. And so what did he do? He sent his soldiers down to Bethlehem and he said, I don't know exactly when this child was born. So every baby boy who's two years old or younger, kill him. Can you imagine? Can you imagine living in that area? Matthew describes it as families were were weeping and wailing. The loss of their children. What an evil man. He would kill every child, every boy, two years old and younger. He'd kill some of his own wives. He'd kill some of his own sons. He represents that world order turned against God. His son Antipas, Herod Agrippa's uncle, would participate in the crucifixion of Jesus. And Agrippa himself would try to destroy the church. Men and women, we live in a world order that hates God, that is set against God. And the natural question for us as a church to ask is sometimes, um, God, are you paying attention? (laughs) God, are you aware of the fact that we're your people, but we're suffering? Remember John the Baptist uh, was in prison and he was suffering and he sent his disciples to Jesus and he said, could could you go and ask Jesus, are you in fact the anointed one? Are you the Messiah or, or should we look to someone else? Should I give up hope in you? Why did John struggle? 
Why was John beginning to doubt and not have hope in Jesus any longer? Remember, he was raised with Jesus. They were cousins, right? So he knew there was something different about Jesus. You know, they're growing up and he's thinking, wow, why does Jesus never get in trouble? Gosh, he's, he's different than all the other kids in our family. He was with Jesus when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. He came up out of the water. The spirit descended in the form of a dove and he heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And yet when he's suffering in prison, he wonders, God, are you still in control? God, is this your man? Why? Because he's the forerunner of the king and yet he's in prison and not in a palace. And he wonders, God, are you paying attention? God, are you aware? God, I've, I've done all that you asked me to do. And yet circumstances are not turning out how I had expected. I have a question for you. As you're walking along the street and you reach an intersection and there's a hand held up in your face, brightly lit, and it says, stop, don't walk. When you see that hand held up in your face, do you punch the button? Do you? I punch the button. How many times do you punch the button? Does anyone just punch the button once? No, you don't. Do you just go punch, punch, punch? doesn't turn. It never turns immediately, does it? It's always punch, punch, punch. It doesn't turn. Now my kids go up and they punch it and I can stand back and go, don't bother. You know, don't bother. you have no control over this situation. Of course, if they weren't there, I'd be punching, punch, punch, punch. You know, God, man, I need to feel like I'm causing something good to happen here. I just discovered actually recently, uh, I have a friend who's, who works for City College Station and the, the traffic center is now online for the city. It's a, it's a room that's got a bank of monitors that are fed by the cameras at every major intersection. You know, in College Station, there are cameras that are watching what's going on so they can control those intersections. They can see all of them on this bank of monitors. And I promise you, it's a true story. Just about a week ago, I pulled up to an intersection, and it was a red light. So I stopped at the red light. And cars are going across in front of me. They have a green light. And then they got a red light, and they stopped. But I didn't get a green light. And then they got another green light and then they started going again, right? And then they stopped and they got another green light and I never got a green light. This happened four times and I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I know what's going on here. There are some guys sitting in that room going, watch this. <laughs> you know, can you see the expression on his face? Look, look through the windshield. What's he saying? Well, I mean, you know, you, you know, that's it's just, they're not trying to help. They're just kicking back enjoying just being vindictive, controlling life, right? You think that when you pull onto that little strip that's cut out, that that actually does something. It doesn't do anything at all. That's how life feels sometimes, doesn't it? Punch, 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 punch. I punched all the right buttons and I punched them over and over and over again, but still it seems like I'm not in control and God's not in control and the righteous are suffering and the unrighteous are prospering. God, what? What's happening? Why, Lord, do you allow your people to suffer? And in those moments, church, we must remember God is still on his throne. God is still sovereign and the gospel is still true. I want you to turn with me to the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 2. You probably have all memorized Psalm 23. Maybe the next on your list should be Psalm 2 because it reminds you that there ultimately is just one king who is over all. And the rulers of the earth answer to him. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain or empty thing? 
The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed or his Messiah saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. But then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. And now the father speaks. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. The father speaks and he says, no, none of you really have any authority except what is given to you by me. And I've established one king, that is my son, who will rule over all. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he may not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. God is sovereign. Even when it doesn't seem like he's acting, God still remains in control. Sovereignty means this. He has all authority and all power over all of creation. Because he made all things, this is his realm, and he has the right to do what he pleases, and he can do anything that he pleases. God is sovereign over all. What that means for us, in other words, is this, practically. The battle is not raging right now between God and Satan, right? Because if the battle were raging between God and Satan, it would be over, right? Because Satan is powerless, relatively speaking. He is so weak. He's nothing. He's a created being in front of the eternal, infinite God. There would be no battle. It would just be over. The battle is not between God and Satan. The battle is between God's children, the church, and Satan. God has put us out on the front lines. And here's the truth. We are not as strong as the angelic, satanic forces that are against us. But greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And so it is God's intention to win a victory through weaker vessels against a stronger force. So that God's power is shown off through that process. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, we have this treasure that is the treasure of Christ in earthen vessels that is fragile, weak vessels. So that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. And Paul goes on, he says, we are distressed, we are downtrodden, we are beaten down, but we are not destroyed. Why? Because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Because God is showing off his power through weakness. In fact, remember Paul would write later, said, you know, there was this thorn in my flesh and I didn't want it any longer because it made me weak. And I said, God, let me be strong. Make me not weak. Take away the thorn. And I asked and I asked and I asked. And God said, no, you will remain weak. Because power is perfected in weakness. That is, my power is perfected in your weakness. And so I will allow you to remain weak to demonstrate my power. And in Acts 12, what we're talking about is literally suffering for our faith. But this applies to every form of suffering that Christians endure. Right? Every form of suffering, whether it is for our faith or sickness and illness and fear, loss of job, broken relationships, it's every form of suffering. This applies equally. Because when we suffer, and we will suffer, We can suffer differently from the world because we have hope. This is not the end of the story. But Jesus Christ will return and he will redeem all things and he will set up his rule and his reign 
forever and ever and ever and ever. As Jesus goes on to say, in this world you do have tribulation, but take courage because I have overcome the world. Now what I find so interesting about this verse is the fact that when Jesus spoke it, he hadn't died yet, he hadn't been buried, and he hadn't risen from the dead. He hadn't ascended, nor had he returned to establish his kingdom. And yet it was so certain that all of these things would happen that he spoke as if they'd happened in the past tense. This is the time in which we live. Where Jesus has said it is so, and we wait for it to happen. In the midst of waiting for it to actually occur, church, we must learn to trust. The God is still sovereign, and the gospel is still true. In his death and burial and resurrection and ascension, Jesus Christ did conquer sin, and he did conquer death, and he gives us hope that he will return forever, and we must learn to trust. Second lesson that the church learns is the suffering church hopes for deliverance. Suffering church hopes for deliverance. When we are under tribulation, we ask the question, God, are you, are you aware? Are you paying attention? God, are you able? God, are you, are you good? Are you good? Read with me chapter 12, verse 5. It says, so Peter was kept in prison But prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. What does the church do when Peter goes to prison again? Well, the church prays. And why does the church pray? I would argue because there's nothing else the church can do. Right? They're kind of stuck. The church is against Rome, against Rome's emissary, Herod Agrippa, against all of the Jewish leadership, and against the satanic forces that are behind them. And what does the church have to fight with. They have no no other tool. They have no other weapon. So what do they do? Church prays. I love this quote from Samuel Chadwick. He said this, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. He trembles when we pray. So what does the church do? The church prays. And the church believes, can God deliver Peter from prison and from certain death? Well, of course, God can. He delivered Peter and John before out of prison, right? They got out before. Can God deliver them? Yes. Does the church know that God will deliver them? No. Peter believes that God can deliver, but does Peter know that God will deliver? No. In fact, just a few days earlier, James was beheaded. So the church prays and somehow, somehow, Peter is at peace. Even while he's in prison, verse 5, it says, Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and two guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. So here's Peter. He is literally laying on a stone floor in a dirty prison. This is a cold time of the year. He has shackles on each arm, and he is sound asleep. Can you imagine how frustrating that was for the guards? You know, here's Peter. He's he's suffering. He's probably been beaten up already. He's got chains on him. It's cold out. He's laying in a dirty prison, and (sighs) Peter's just snoring. He's just sound asleep. Is there any greater picture of peace in the midst of suffering than that. These soldiers, you know, they've given their lives to to making people feel scared, right? And what's Peter doing? He's asleep. 
How can Peter be asleep? Is he promised deliverance? No, he's not promised deliverance. But he trusts, and he trusts in God's goodness no matter what the plan. Remember those three young men who are about to be thrown into a fiery furnace? And the greatest king on earth at that point in time says to them, so you think that your God can deliver you out of this fiery furnace? You think so? I'm going to heat it up hotter than it's ever been before. And they say to him, well, of course. Of course our God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down to you. (laughs) Even if he doesn't, we will not deny him. Even if he doesn't, we will trust in him that no matter what happens, he will work this for good. Because we trust in God. Peter's in prison, and yet he's at peace. And the church is praying, praying and believing that God can deliver. Verse 7 says, Behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals, and he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. He did not know that he w- what was being done by the angel was actually real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, And from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And what I love about this deliverance is that Peter had nothing to do with it. Peter's sound asleep. He's snoring. He's between the two guards. And the angel comes up and he kicks him. Peter, wake up. Wake up. He's shackled. There's no way he can escape. And the chains just fall out. The guards are blinded as he stands up. And the, the gate to his cell opens up. And he walks past two more guards that are blinded from that. And then he walks out to the very edge of the city, which is locked down for the night. And the gate opens by itself. Peter realizes and rests in the fact that he is not in control. But God is. And God is good. Was his deliverance guaranteed? No. Jesus was crucified. Stephen was put to death. James has just died. He wasn't promised that, but he was still able to be at peace because he trusted in the character of God that God is good. And so he hoped, and the church hoped, and the church expressed its hope through prayer. Verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate... A servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she didn't open the gate. But she ran in and announced, Peter's standing at the front of the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. Okay, they've been praying for this, but they just can't believe it's actually happened yet, right? So she keeps insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. No, the only, we, we just can't believe actually her prayer was answered. He must have died already and sent his angel somehow. I don't know where their theology is at the moment, but... That's all they can conclude, right? So Peter keeps knocking. When they finally opened the door, they saw him and they were amazed that their prayer had been answered. But motioning to them, quiet down. He described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison and he said, report these things to James, that is the brother of Jesus, and to the brethren. Then he left and he went to another place. In other words, the church believes that God can deliver but they're struggling with disbelief. 
but they believe enough to pray. And when you are suffering, sometimes it is difficult, isn't it, to believe that God can intervene? But you know that he has before. You've seen it in your own life. You've heard others tell stories. You've read it in scripture. God can intervene and sometimes he does intervene and you believe that he can again on this occasion. But it's really hard to believe it'll actually occur so much so that sometimes when it does happen, you wonder, did that really happen? But you believe enough to pray and you know what? That is enough. Do you believe enough just to get down on your knees and ask? That is hope. That's the second lesson that the church learns. Church learns to hope for deliverance. Third, the church waits for vindication. Verse 18. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to to Caesarea and he was spending time there. Herod Agrippa was a half Jew. He practiced Judaism, at least when he was Jerusalem, but he was an evil man. And when things didn't turn out his way, he punched a button and he said, you 16 men, you're dead. (laughs) Executed them. And then he traveled down to Caesarea, which was the, the seat of his governance at that point in time. Caesarea that really, in a sense, represented uh, man's will apart from God. It was built by Herod the Great, his grandfather, who had also built the temple where Jesus had worshipped. But probably the crowning achievement of Herod the Great's architecture and engineering was Caesarea. Because in Caesarea, he built a port where there was no port. And he used a technique in, in, in creating a port in the, in the Mediterranean Sea that had never been used before. You can even now, if you fly overhead, you can see the, where he put concrete footers that he poured under the water. Something no one else had done before. It was a city that he dedicated to Caesar Augustus. And there was a palace. And there was a temple to Caesar Augustus. And there was a hippodrome. And there were Roman baths. It represented man's will apart from God. And so... Herod Agrippa goes back, in a sense, to the center of his own life, his own worldview. And he stands against God, and he stands against the church. And we wonder sometimes, God, will you intervene? God, are you, are you going to get justice for your people? Again, from the book of Psalms, How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? In the case of Herod Agrippa I, actually it wasn't long. It was really quick. Read with me verse 20. It says, Now Agrippa was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They had some dispute, we don't know why. But with one accord, these people came to him, having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and he died. And I love that story. I think that's just such an awesome story. I don't know, you know, that's just junior high boys and their dads like stories like that. But I I love that that little detail was included that he was eaten by worms. Uh, Josephus tells the same story. And he says that uh, Herod put on his robe that had silver thread woven throughout. And so as he's sitting in the amphitheater, which is right next to the sea, and the sun rises, it hit Herod's 
robe and it just it was just shimmering and shining. And the people cried out, God in human flesh. Voice of a God, not of a man. Voice of a God, not of a man. Voice of a God, not of a man. And Herod just sat back and enjoyed their praise. And God struck him. According to Josephus, he just, he curled up. He had so much pain in his stomach and he suffered for five days and then he died eaten by worms. Wow. Isn't that awesome? Justice, quick, immediate, kind of violent. (laughs) Painful. God can intervene. God can intervene quickly. God doesn't always intervene immediately and he doesn't always intervene quickly. But he can and he will. And there have been men throughout the century who have tried to steal God's glory. But someday, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Someday, God will in fact vindicate his great name. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But for us, church, as we wait for that moment to occur, when God vindicates his great name, as we wait... Sometimes we struggle. And I will tell you, if you believe that God's will for your life is, as Francis Schaeffer called it, personal peace and affluence, right? if you believe that's God's will for my life, then sometimes you will say to yourself, God is for me. And then you will say, God is against me. Now God is for me again, and now God is against me. And God is for me, and now God is against me. And you will suffer disappointment if you believe God's will for your life is always personal peace and affluence. If, on the other hand, you believe God's will for your life is Jesus. If you believe that God's will for your life is to exalt that name which is above every name, and to lead people to exalting that name which is above every name, because they will bend the name before Jesus. If you believe that that is God's will for your life, then whether you are blessed or whether you are suffering, you will never be disappointed, because you can exalt the name of Jesus Christ in blessing and in suffering. And when you say, that's God's will for my life, and I embrace that as God's will for my life, then you will never be ashamed, you will never be embarrassed, you will never be disappointed in God. Because he will exalt the name of Jesus. As Paul once wrote of himself, he said, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Whether by life or by death, whether by blessing or by suffering, for to me, to live is Christ. So church, as we close, we are going to celebrate uh, communion. And I want to remind you that uh, communion... Yeah, if I can have the men go back and get prepared for us. Communion is a celebration of victory. So the bread and the cup, are, are at, they seem to be symbols of defeat, right? They're symbols of bread, a broken body, and the cup, symbol of blood, spilled, death. They're symbols of death. They seem to be symbols of defeat. But actually, they're symbols of victory. Because through death, through defeat, God accomplished the greatest victory ever. Because through the death of his son, Jesus... Right? He conquered sin and he conquered death. That is, through apparent weakness, God demonstrated his great strength. He did it through Jesus and he does it through our lives as well. And so communion is, is a celebration. It's a celebration of the victory of Jesus Christ. It's a celebration of God's strength, even as we celebrate and remember the death of Christ. Because through defeat, God accomplished the victory. And so it may be this morning that you, you are suffering and you feel like you are under tribulation, right? That, that tight place, that narrow space. 
and you feel like you are in fact weak. And you need to remember that it is through weakness that God demonstrates his strength. So as the men come forward to service, let's just take a few moments and remember and celebrate the victory that Jesus won through his apparent defeat. After the men's service, we'll take the elements together. Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, This bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you that you accomplished perfect and final victory through the apparent defeat of your son. You conquered sin for all time, for all people. We don't have to live under the fear of death any longer. And we can trust that you will vindicate your great name. And we wait in hope for that day. It may be this morning that uh, you feel like you are under, under that tribulation, that moment when uh, life is pressing down upon you and um, you need hope and encouragement. We have some folks who will be down front who would love to pray with you uh, and pray for you. Pray God's spirit to bring you, you courage. Father, we thank you that we can trust you, that you remain sovereign, you remain on your throne, and that you remain able and willing, that you are good, that you are paying attention to what's going on and that you will someday return and vindicate your great name. And so we stand with you. Stand with you in this day and we proclaim that, that Jesus Christ is our life. He alone is our life. Father, make us a blessing to those around us who also may be suffering. Let us breathe courage into their lives and their hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. See you next week.